0: One of the um, powers of committing to not harming each other and ourselves is um, that it creates an atmosphere of protection and safety. Uh, so it, it's this atmosphere is meant to include like ants and birds and um any being that's breathing, you know, that it includes trees, it just includes um, all the beings that we share the planet with. And you'll find, I think, that as the days go on, that as you get quieter and you start to, um, hopefully, (laughs) the idea is that one feels a deeper connection with yourself and other beings and in it other uh, beings including humans, that you start to see the safety just in terms of like when you're taking a step, if you can, um, you don't intentionally step on something. Or if these are very simple things, but say you go into the shower or the bathtub and you see an ant there and uh, we can tend to casually just sort of turn, on the water and say, "Well, tough luck." <laughs> if There's a bug in there. It's their tough luck. But the idea is that you 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 pause and you see, is there anything I can do before I turn the water on to um, bring this bug out of there? So it can seem like, "Oh, yeah, these are kind of relatively simple." But sometimes it's that extra um, effort that we often. We're so busy and tired in our daily lives. But here, you'll start to see that you get more energy, and you get more connected and interested in other beings as well as yourself. And it's not that we aren't already, but it makes space for a deeper connection and then yet a deeper connection. And any time, Pasha, you want to get up and go, No, you're okay? Okay. (laughs) I appreciate that you're here. Okay. Um, so tonight I wanted to um, touch into why Steve and I tend to be teaching with more of an emphasis on a non-conceptual loving-kindness or the non-conceptual immeasurables. Um and also why we tend to bring a lot of the Vipassana practice or the mindfulness practice into how we teach the loving-kindness and the other Brahma-Viharas. Um, and just more about them. And, uh, you know, again, I apologize for not being here um, today, but Steve told me a bit about what he talked about, so I'll talk a lot about, a bit more about uh, when we bring in the structure of um, <coughs> using phrases and uh, how that might be helpful for you. Um, so, at first, uh, to, at the beginning of the talk, I wanted to talk a bit about receptive attention and how. Um, we we use a receptive attention whether we're doing the loving-kindness practice or whether we're doing the wisdom, vipassana practice. And if you listen to the, our instructions, um, you'll find that at the beginning of a sitting, whether we teach now vipassana, mindfulness, wisdom practice, or the loving-kindness practice, we tend to be really emphasizing the pre-verbal awareness and we're emphasizing this um, concurrent attention. Um, And so concurrent means that the attention is in the present moment, right with what's happening. Uh, So we encourage you to check, to see, like at the beginning of the sitting, to just check in with sounds, or walking or eating, you check in with sounds. You check in with your body sensations. You check to see: Is my attention? You can do it with the sound of my voice right now. It's like: Is my attention right with the sound, or as it's happening, or is it behind, or is it ahead? Uh, it it's very powerful to to check in with listening. It's like you're listening to your body sensations, and is it a memory? Or is it right in the moment? And this is meant to help us really get here But it also helps us start to notice the thinking that's happening more clearly And it's not that we're trying to stop the thinking at all But we're trying to distinguish between the thoughts about our experience And the direct experience so, of course, if you're listening um, to sound and you're walking outside and there's a the sound of birds, um, you might be with a direct sensation of pressure and tingling and vibration. Um, but again, of course, a thought about the bird. <laughs> you know, oh, that's a, you know, a bird, <laughs> or you know, that's a chickadee, or whatever might appear in your mind. And, and the instruction is to start to notice A receptive attention is receiving the vibration, the tingling, whatever is happening in the moment with our body, sounds. And also being receptive to the thoughts about it, but not um, thinking that they're the same. Uh, so, when we are um, living more in the future or more in the past, we're not receiving life as it is. You know, we're not receiving the body sensations as they are. We're not receiving the sounds just as they are. And then, of course, it shifts when we start teaching about emotion. We're not receiving the loneliness as it is. We're caught in the thoughts about the loneliness. It's a memory. It's not present time awareness. Um, Do you you see the difference? It it starts to get very interesting as the days go go by. Um, The insight that happens with the loving-kindness practice is that we're not separate from anything. That we and that there's such a deep, profound interconnection with all living beings, but also it's it's also a, um, an understanding that um, that great saying: if you walked a mile in somebody's moccasins, you'd understand them, right? You know, it's like it's like there's a sense that it's not just kindness, it's not just the word love. The word love is what, but that there's an underlying meaning that a growing um, interest and understanding of oneself or another will come not with conditioning, not with conditions on it, but with unconditional love. And and so you you start kind of. Um, as you start deepening the understanding of what loving-kindness is, you start seeing that it actually we can't talk about it without including wisdom. That, that the meaning of metta, or the meaning of loving-kindness, in this sense, is that it's love totally infused with wisdom. That it, that it is unconditional, that it has no conditions on it. And we're meant to receive that. When we, when we teach the non-conceptual metta, the encouragement is that the receptive attention is actually receiving that unconditional love in our bodies, like in the cells of our bodies, not just through thoughts. So that over the years when we were teaching the metta with, the, with just the categories Or just the phrases of, may you be safe and protected, or may you be happy and peaceful, which we really believe in that practice. It's not like we're saying, don't do it. We're saying, try to learn to value both. That there's a time to do it with that kind of quiet and abiding, and then... To start with a kind of quiet abiding To start with a more receptive attention Because then if you do a phrase Like may I be safe and protected That it isn't just in the thought process That you can bring it into our being The heart Like it's bringing it into the heart, body, mind Rather than just the thought (laughs) You're going to hang out, okay? Okay. Um. So what I've found for myself, which has been, you know, after a lot of doing both of these practices, that that there are times when just that quiet abiding with the love and kindness practice, and, and again, just the instruction is to incline your mind toward the metta, and to see what happens. But it's like you're in an energy field of metta. And so if a sound appears, you, you attempt to um, have the awareness relate to it with kindness and then notice it disappear. Or if there's a body sensation, you, you just see if you can notice that if the quality of the awareness itself has kindness in it. And then you notice whatever happens to it. So that, like that, again, you're beginning the sitting with a with like a 50% loving kindness, 50% mindfulness. Um, It would be like if you got a scoop of ice cream, and you got half chocolate and half vanilla, right? You you know it, and then over time, you know how it you can get a swirl. And then, you know, these flavors, you start understanding that you're not trying to make anything happen. But you start seeing that um, there's a quotation I love by an Indian saint named Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj. Um, He said that it's affectionate awareness that can bring reality into focus. And so it, it a lot of our teaching comes out, out of a lot of experience of um, teaching a mindfulness practice, which is really the intention to understand rather than to judge our experience. That that's the quality of the awareness is this understanding how effortless judgment is. You know, it's understanding how quickly we judge everything. You know, and we it's amazing. And if you're new to the practice, it's very important to kind of try to have some, you know, humor with it, because science is catching up with us. The couple of um, the last time I was flying, um, they had some movie on on the plane that was describing, um, from a scientific perspective, that when we look at something, that ninety something like ninety. I'm not sure exactly ninety or ninety-eight, something like that. Ninety percent of what we see is memory, and uh, the, in the in the Buddhist vipassana mindfulness practice, that's just been assumed. It's a given that if you look, the next mind moment will be a judgment. If you hear a sound, the next mind moment will be a judgment. You know, and then if you, you have a thought, the next moment will be a judgment of that thought. I mean, it's just, it's how we're wired. So when you tell most of us human beings to pay attention, and you start getting quiet, uh, you'll start to see a lot of judgment. And the idea is that you don't judge the judgment. Judgment that you start getting interested in the whole process of, well, how how is the mind actually happening? How is the body actually happening? How is the heart actually happening? And then out of that, where is their freedom? Where is their choice? So what we found for some time... Um, what we find is that if we get enough training of how to do the loving kindness practice, and if we get enough training, it is a training of how to do the mindfulness practice, we get two skill sets rather than just one. And so that the awareness without the loving kindness tends to be cold. Like a cold observation, and it and we tend to really um, judge our experience. So that when there's sleepiness, even if we practice a lot, there's there's still a sense of like that sleepiness isn't okay, and that if there's doubt or if there's you know anything that isn't okay you know pain in any way that there's this idea that it's not okay, and we you know we have a self hatred attack. And then if other people are having, you know, whatever they're doing it, it's That however it isn't okay for, for us You know, there's the judgment of that And there's the rejection of that aspect of people um, That's how hard it is There is this, you know, depth of um, judgment of pain in this world and so that we need, we really need. Whether it's a vipassana retreat, mindfulness retreat, or a metta retreat, if it's a metta retreat, you need a lot of mindfulness. And if it's a <laughs> if it's a mindfulness retreat, you need a lot of metta. Um, so we're asking you for the next few days to be patient enough to kind of um, find your way with doing the metta and then having the vipassana as a backup, but you might find that if you're new, that you don't take to the metta and we will say, do, some, do vipassana and have the metta as a backup. So you don't have to feel like something's wrong or that you know, it's not going right. It's like you just have to kind of um, do a few days of practice before you can get a sense of you know, really how it's going to be going for you and what's happening. Even if you're an old student, it always changes. Hopefully, it doesn't stay the same. So, whether you're sitting or walking, that like at the beginning, or you know, several times or many times during the sitting or walking, that grounding in with just checking to see is the intention here to be kind, is the intention here to understand. And then to ground with that receptive attention So that you're, you're, you're just checking to see Am I really just lost in um, my head and my thought process? Or is the attention starting to come into my body As well as just, just in the mental sphere? Um, and then you'll find that um, for some people the quiet abiding is more of a, a homeland and a place to go. And then you bring in the phrases once in a while um, as, a, as a kind of um, energizer. It would be like stepping on the gas. And for people who the phrases are more of a homeland, then you do the phrases more and the, the kind of quieter, quiet abiding would be like stepping on the gas. Um, but either way um, One time one of our students described the loving kindness practice um, As Now I don't know how dated this is But you know a lawnmower The kind that you have to pull the uh, the cord to get it going At least when I was a kid You know you just pull that thing and pull that thing And it would feel like your arm would fall off after a while It was just endless like trying to get it started That's how metta practice can feel. You know, you're kind of feeling like you're, you're saying, may we be happy, may we be peaceful, and you don't feel anything. You know, and you go through the next day, and it's like you're hearing about safe and protected, whatever, you know, strong and healthy, or just this quiet abiding, and it's like boredom. Boredom, sleepiness, restlessness—you know, there's just the hindrances come up. So, so it it it, it has that quality of kind of um, pulling this cord, and then eventually it'll get going, and you'll feel that it carries you for a while, and you know you move along, and then you know it stops, and uh, you go through these fallow, quiet, um, but not not rich. It's like more quiet. And please be careful of making an interpretation about yourself in relationship to the periods that are a slog. You know, that that is probably the most important thing you'll learn on a retreat. That whatever is happening, you don't have to make an interpretation that, oh now I'm great because this is going well, or, or I'm the worst person in the world because it's not going well, or well, I guess I'm equal to everybody because I think, you know, I'm doing okay. It's like that extra interpretation is extra. So ultimately... Um, the combination of an awareness that has affection in it sometimes really gives us permission to explore because it has that quality my experience and what we find with everyone is that if there's some kindness present then we tend to be more interested in life and then lo and behold if there's some interest in kindness we actually want to to live it's that powerful and that, like, if there's the kindness interest and there's some semblance of, like, oh, yeah, I, I really want to be here. But not like being led around by like self centered, attached desire, but really just really wanting to understand, be here. Like, really be here and try to understand what being here is really like without the judgment. Uh, and then, if there's enough mindfulness and loving kindness, there is actually the skill to explore. Uh, and there's nothing like it It's liberating It's liberating It's liberating, <laughs> it's liberating. Uh-huh. This is a, a poem by uh, A monk Poet, Rio Khan who lived from 1758 to 1831. He said, I know a gentleman poet who writes in the high old old way, master of form from Han and Wei, or new style modeled on the Tang. With elegant strokes, he quietly composes, deftly adding images to startle. But he hasn't learned to speak from the heart. All wasted Though he writes all night long. What I have found with the um, phrases is that there are times when they are, like, such an important anchor for me. And they're not, they're not wasted at all, even if they're just thoughts. So I, I might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but it's very important to know that sometimes when the thoughts that we're having are so um, negative and so um, powerful that to be able to say, like, as you're walking around, I don't mean just here, but in life, to be able to look at somebody in traffic and say, May you be happy. May I be happy. is such a It's such a big change in the chemistry of our body, in the in the um, tenseness of our bodies. To to be able to say it, even if we don't mean it, shifts things. So there are levels to this. That it's very important again to be careful of judging. And uh, the practice and the training I have to be able to say some phrases, even if I'm exhausted, even if I'm bored, even if I'm really angry, has been a. Um, and it's such a great tool, such a great skill. Uh, so you might think, oh. There's no meaning to these words that I'm saying But actually, that's only because there's not enough concentration There's not enough energy In fact, there's a... we'll talk about it as the retreat goes on But there's a a concentration factor, or a jonic factor, we talk That means that the attention is just able to aim It's just, you know, you'll find that you're spaced out And it helps you just collect the attention uh, and col- connect, collect and connect the attention. Being able to say a phrase means you've collected the attention and you've, con- you've connected it. Having meaning with the phrase means that there's a deeper level of concentration. Um, we talk of we char, that's we-, we char. You're sustaining the attention long enough with it that there's meaning. I can't tell you how many times... In my life and practice, I'll say a phrase without the meaning, and I'm, I'll be grateful for it. It's much better than a lot of the thinking that we're doing when we're stressed or tired, or you know. It's like the, it's very important to not when we're teaching this to not feel like oh, it's better to be wor- doing wordless abiding. No, they're different skills for different times, and they're they're. They're, they're extreme. One is just kind of a, a quiet, um, sometimes a quiet waiting. You're really doing the mindfulness practice, and you're kind of waiting, and you've set the intention. When I do that style of practice, I'll set the intention, and maybe five minutes before the bell rings, I'll feel some love and kindness. And, I, and I'll go, Wow, that's amazing. It's like, <laughs> oh, it took that long for that intention to kick in. And I'll feel it, and I'll be like, oh. You know, it was like attempting to be kind toward whatever appears. You're just being with that receptive attention. And that energy field of loving kindness will sort of will build up. Steve describes it. It's like feeling a water water kind of coming in and filling. Um, what's that description? It's like if you're at the beach and you'll see dry sand and you see water come into the sand and how it'll trickle in and fill the, fill the fill the sand well that's how the meta will be it'll start to come into the dryness of our heart mind body and it'll trickle in in many different ways in spite of ourselves So both both will be important. Both will be um, both will be important, valuable, and try not try not to uh, keep measuring where you're at with it or fathom where you're at with it. It's it's um, it's quite a um, invisible process that happens. <coughs> And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the, benefactor. Um, the benefactor. The benefactor—the word is very old-fashioned, uh, and the meaning of that word—that you know—that you start—you basically. Again, we're recommending starting with that receptive attention, the quiet, the intention to be kind, and then, um, at times, bringing in someone you really love. And that someone we really love is meant to be someone who doesn't bring necessarily a lot of stuff up for us, but they're like the... I think of them as like the bearer of the heart's truth. Like they're bearing our heart's truth um, to help us tune into our own goodness and our own truth. And if you look back in your life, there will be a few beings that have been like a lifeline to you in your life. Uh, Literally a lifeline. There are people who, or other beings, I don't mean just humans, it could be um, another being. Um, But they're beings that really make life worth living. And they're usually beings who have helped us um, when when it got tough, or like they've in inspired us. So the the the, the, um, the translation that we get is for the benefactor is someone who has shown us kindness, or someone that we respect or admire. And the Buddha said that. There are two rare and types. there are rare and precious. Two types of rare and precious human beings in this world: someone who shows kindness, and someone who appreciates the kindness that's been shown to us. So when we shift into like tuning into a benefactor, you know, really bringing the feeling essence of that being. Sometimes you imagine the person in front of you or beside you, or when you're walking, you kind of walk toward them. And then you turn around, you place the image or feeling essence. Sometimes you walk with them. But it's, it's, it's um, meant to be someone or some being very easy for you to, to connect with. And this can be the sky. This can be a chipmunk. This can be a stuffed animal. In our culture, you go for what you can get. But really, you go for where any juice is And it, there's no judgment It's just like you, you have to If you're new, you have to You know, We used to joke, you have to audition <laughs> You have to audition beings A few beings to where, where you will feel like something it, And try not to think it's going to be Some big cathartic experience It can be so quiet Just a very quiet connection With some being A lot more I was going to say about this. Um, uh, this is from the, the um, prison letters of George Jackson uh, in his book *Soldad Brothers*. And he, it's a longer quote tonight. I'll just give one little part of it. But he said, "No one." no one is more vulnerable no one is more susceptible to kindness than the desperate person and I think that again when I say look back at your life and see where you have found a being or a place Stephen has recommended it doesn't have to be a tree or a person it can be a place but something that you feel, um, you, you were able to receive, you were able to receive, here's that receptive attention again, but you're able to receive, um, some connection. Last year and a couple of months ago, um, This starving, feral kitty came to my door Uh, Very, very young Very thin Starving Um, And I travel a lot And I went out to her and I started telling her You know, this is not like The best bet You know In terms of Me feeding you And I just I just talked to her Like she could understand And And then I just said You know I'm going to give you A little milk But I really want you To find someone else To depend on Because I'm going to Be traveling a lot um, So you know Gave her a little milk She came back The next day Gave her a little milk You know That went on for a while Then I went away And in my heart I was thinking Okay You know I think I was gone a month If she survives Great You know And I came back, and she was still very thin, gave her a little milk. Um, And this, I'm allergic to cats, by the way. Um, So this went on for maybe three months, where I'd go away, come back, she'd still come by. Still didn't look like anybody else was feeding her. Um, And then to make a long story short, um, she was pregnant. So how I figured that out is she, when I came back, when she started drinking a quart of milk a day. <laughs> and I don't know anything about cats, and I'm like, a quart of milk a day? This is amazing. You know, what is, what is going on? And then a little while later I found out that she had had two kitties that were also very hungry and also wanted a home. Um, but those two baby kitties... Never knew that desperation, and they're totally feral. You know, they are they don't—they're more—they're amazingly feral. They would never let me touch them. They come to the door, and you know, now I feed them real food, you know, cat food, and you know, some treats. As Steve can attest. <laughs> but um, what I am continually amazed at is that it was out of that desperation and her bravery like this incredible courage to just keep coming to to me you know, hoping for some kindness that we made a very deep connection and it's always going to be there it's, it's very powerful and, and so, you know all I'm asking you is to look into your heart and when you step outside here and you see like how incredibly fortunate we are to be in a place like this where you know the earth is just not looking like this for most people uh and that the the, the way that like nature holds us and then that the way that um we don't necessarily see our bodies as part of nature and we don't necessarily see our thoughts as part of nature or our hearts as part of nature um and that, that is such a big problem. So we're hoping for you that as you do the this loving kindness practice and the, the mindfulness practice that you can start to drop into. I think of the loving kindness practice as literally like what it feels like when you're on a hammock. You know, any any way that you make this intention to Connect with loving kindness in any way that you find that you can. It could be with a hummingbird at a feeder. It it could be that it's um, a stone. Um, but it, but it's finding that thread of connection with something outside of ourselves to then find that connection inside of ourselves. Uh, because the teaching is that. All, we already have what we need within us. We, the teaching is is that self-hatred is a grievous error. It's, it's an error. Um, and we get so lost because we feel so separate. The near enemy um, of loving-kindness is attachment. It's like a a love with attachment, and it means that we're controlling, we're trying to control with a love. Um, And the opposite of loving-kindness, or the far enemy, is hatred. So the near enemy means that the experience seems so much like loving-kindness, but it isn't. So it's like, you know how... um, the the deep connections with others that we have on this planet, you know, will they're so powerful but they can get so attached. And it and we're not saying that the attachment is wrong. We're saying that it isn't unconditional love. And often we we find what unconditional love is through the the beings that we're closest with. Because we start seeing that when they relate to us with conditional love, how it hurts. Or when we relate to others with conditional love, how it hurts. Um, So part of the exploration of this retreat is starting to see when you relate to yourself with conditional love or when you relate to others with conditional love and starting to distinguish between what is love in a metta and what is attached love. And then knowing how painful... um, the hatred and the anger is, and, and understanding that that's when we feel the most separate. I was just thinking of um, a good friend of mine, son, that lives in Western Massachusetts, was describing to me. He has four ch- four kids and uh, lives out kind of um, in a small town, um, and his neighbor. You know, okay, so just you know, four kids, small town, and his neighbor um, like cut all the trees on the border of their property, like not, not on their land, but on the neighbor's land. There was this beautiful, uh, kind of like a little bit of like a forest around their property, and he he chopped it all down, and then he sprayed. <laughs> this isn't funny, but sometimes when something's this bad, I laugh. It's like he sprayed poison all around the edges, and um, he was doing that daily. And he said he was so angry, like, at this neighbor. He just wanted to kill him. He was just so angry. And he tried to talk to the neighbor, and he wouldn't listen. And he was describing this to me about a a month and a half ago. Like, he said the anger was so painful, and it was just getting so intense. And he realized he just couldn't bear it. Like he said, he never wanted to feel anything like that again. And, he and his family are all into meditation. His father's written all these famous books in the New York Times, and he's, he's rejected it entirely. And it was so much fun to like listen to his root into this. His root into the loving-kindness practice was just this unbearable rage. And just not wanting you know, not wanting to kill the neighbor, right? Knowing that that was not something he wanted to do, but he didn't know what to do. And here's an example, again, of just that that desperation can bring us uh, very deep if we open, you know, it makes us susceptible to kindness. Whether it's like us having to find at some point, finally, our own kindness and it's not like we can tend to feel like <laughs> where is it? <laughs> you know what how other people have it but I don't. But it's not like that. We are. it's like nobody really has to be taught what kindness is. You already know what it is. But we don't give it airtime, we don't give it space. We don't make enough um, what I would call fallow time and we're not patient enough to, to go through we tend to on a retreat to have to go through a lot of boredom to go into something, find this deeper well of the juice. You know, or we have to go through the anger or we have to go through the sleepiness or we have to go through whatever the lust or whatever whatever is difficult for us will come up. But it's it's learning That if you can get through that stuff, you can, um, and you're patient, you find these qualities that are always there. Did I put you to sleep yet? No? No, that's amazing. You're great. So, I have a couple of times to end with. It's a very human thing to do to want to know what metta is or loving kindness is or to want to know what mindfulness is and uh, it can be helpful to want to learn but also to not to try to nail it down into a specific kind of experience so I wanted to read you just a few little teeny poems that I think give a kind of a little bit of breadth to the different ways loving kindness can manifest And this is from Isa, Japanese poet, 1763 to 1827. Don't kill that poor fly. He cowers, wringing his hands for mercy. The distant mountains are reflected in the eye of the dragonfly. Very different, huh? So please don't think that one of these is right, or more one or the other, that this is, you know, one is more compassionate, and one is more whatever. Just just to know that our understanding of compassion, or loving kindness, or wisdom, are, are going to take these, like, different forms. And these are still words, but ultimately, we can never put it into words. And then I'd like to end with uh, the monk, Kenji, who lived around the time of 875 in Japan. True, I may appear unkempt like a rotting tree, jetsam or flatsam, but on the right occasion, this old heart can still blossom. On retreat, we're creating the conditions for, at some point, our old hearts, our young hearts, to blossom. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.